Good morning. It's uh, the Lord's Day. Let's celebrate the Lord's Day together. And we can do that by spending some time in the Lord's Word. We're in Isaiah 48 this morning, which I believe is on page 608 in your pew Bibles. If you wouldn't mind, why don't we stand and read our passage. Isaiah 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who were called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh, and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. Yahweh of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago, before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been open. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? Yahweh loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am Yahweh your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then you were, your peace would have been like a river 
and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says Yahweh, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, good news has come to us, and we pray that you would unite us by faith under your word, that we may all enter into your rest. Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. May it pierce to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and may it discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Lord, cause us to hear and believe and trust in you, and may you lead us home to you. Amen. All right, so last week James took us through chapters 46 and 47, and today we'll see that chapter 48 works as a a complement to that, a bit of a contrast what some commentators have called the tale of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Isaiah 46, 47 made it clear that Babylon is doomed, and Isaiah 48 picks up on that to say, after a bit of a preamble, when the time comes, leave Babylon and head home to Jerusalem. This is conveyed by Isaiah as a poem, so it's not quite as straightforward as an email communication, even though it's structured a little bit like one, we'll see. Um, But there's a bit of a buildup. Isaiah doesn't get to the heart of his message till really verse 17 or even 20, depending on how you define it. You'll also note that Isaiah continues on the same vein as last week with ensuring everyone is paying attention. He continues to exclaim, listen to me. Are you paying attention? You in the back. Are you paying attention? Can you hear me clearly? You're going to want to hear me when I tell you what I have to say. So who do you have to ask if they're listening three, four times? I mean, someone who has a track record of not listening. So listen up. Here's how we're going to tackle this passage. Although I mentioned it's a bit like a poem. Um, It's made up of two clear halves that are uh, parallel, it's very symmetrical, 1 to 11, 12 to 22, but we'll break it down uh, in four points. 1 to 8, intended recipients, God's undeserving people. Verse 9 to 11, purpose, God's glory. Verse 12 to 16, on whose account, God's authority. And then 17 to 22, the call to action, Go home. So let's start with the first section, verses 1 to 8. This this section is the culmination of all of the indictments 
that Isaiah has been leveling against the Israelites from chapter 46 and 47. Isaiah has been making his case against them, and here he caps it all off. And verse 1 starts with a bang. You call yourselves God's people, but you are God's people in all but truth and right. In other words, not at all. You see it at the end of the first verse there. That stings. I mean, Isaiah comes out swinging in this passage, and we're just going to have to try to keep up. You call yourselves my people, but in truth, you're not. And by right, you're not. You have no right to call yourselves God's people. These Israelites in exile in Babylon, they clung to their ethnic identity, their cultural identity, their lineage, their denomination, but they knew nothing of God's heart. They shunned his scriptures. They did what felt right. That's how they ended up in exile, but we see that it's also how they continued in exile, embracing the trappings that Babylon had to offer. They're cultural followers of Yahweh, nominal believers in name only. Is there anything more devastating to the Christian witness that someone who calls themselves a Christian going around publicly sinning? It can feel like these people are tarnishing God's glory. Do you ever feel like you're made to answer for the sins of all those who do harm in the name of Christ or in the name of the church? I think we all hear these accusations, sometimes by those who are dear to us. Christianity is responsible for wars. Didn't you know about the Crusades? Christians owned slaves. Christians were racist. Christians ran residential schools. Christians are responsible for abuse. How do you respond? What do you say to a friend who asks you, how can you defend this God? Not only does he allow these things to happen, they're done in his name. What do you say when someone you're trying to witness to says, don't you see churches are filled with hypocrites? What do you say? What's your comeback? Well, you see, like, these people, they're not, like, real Christians or whatever. Well, they're carrying crosses. They're flying flags that say, Jesus saves. I'm talking about a pastor. This is someone... This is something I heard someone say recently. They were confronting a pastor about something another church did. How are you any different from them? You all read the same book. Now we're getting somewhere. The book. We're all outfitted with the same book. But what do we do with that book? It's pretty heavy. Works well as a blunt instrument. There's tons and tons of words in this book. I mean, you can sift through them, pick and choose, rearrange them. 
you can support just about any notion you want. If you want to make the case that slavery is good, you could probably find a couple of verses that you could take out of context to make your case, and then you'd have to promptly ignore the other 99% of the book. If you want to read the Bible through the lens of your worldview, you can probably find something in there to support your cause. It's not that inventive. It's definitely not new. People have been doing it since the beginning. And many instances are revealed in the Bible itself. I mean, how many books did Paul have to write about false teachers? But you see, if you believe Jesus, if you follow Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you heed the words of Jesus who said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will abide in his word. Jesus is the word of God. You cannot separate Jesus from the Bible. You cannot say you're a follower of Jesus Christ and not abide in his word, the Bible. You cannot call yourself a Christian and have any higher authority than the Bible because the Bible is the word of God. Not in part, not just the New Testament, not just the red letters or the quotes, not the parts you like, but the whole Bible, Genesis 1, 1 to Revelation 22, 21. You cannot interpret the Bible through the lens of the world. You interpret the world through the lens of the Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Christian cannot circumvent the Bible. His path is right through this book. His entire life is lived through this book. There's no picking and choosing. There's no rearranging of words. And when you read the whole book, you come across a chapter like Isaiah 48, and how can anyone possibly read this book, read this chapter, and then be surprised by nominal believers who will do awful, sinful things in the name of the God who says, you have no right to invoke my name. So is Maple Avenue Baptist Church full of hypocrites? No, it's full of sinners. We all know we're sinners. We live out our faith imperfectly. But we're blood-bought sinners, redeemed by God through the blood of Christ. We do not look down our noses at anyone. We're the chief of sinners. We throw ourselves at the mercy of our God, our God who cannot be harmed by the false witness of so-called Christians, the Christians in name only, the nominal Christians who do not know him, who are Christians in all but truth and right. 
God's glory will be revealed. Don't worry about him. Worry about those who do not know him. Worry about those who are going to be surprised at the revelation of his glory. While the world looks at the church and says, how can God exist when his church is filled with sinners? We believers read our Bibles and say, praise the Lord that God exists because his church is filled with sinners. What could bring more glory to God than redeeming a whole bunch of wretched sinners? After all, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. That's the heart of our God. God's claim to who he is is not diminished by their failure to live up to his name. But he does have something to say to them. This is who he's addressing, these faithless people of God. And here in the our passage, there's the first hint of what he has to say to them between verses 3 and 5. I told you what was going to happen ahead of time. I called the shot so you would know it was me. I intended to bring about exactly what happened. Because I knew you would not want to believe it. You're stiff-necked and hard-headed. So I made it real clear and obvious by predicting exactly what would happen. I told you that you would not be abandoned in exile forever. I told you in chapter 45 that Cyrus would come to free you. I told you his name, Cyrus, that he would be my instrument as I save you from exile. God knew they would want to credit their idols, so he made it undeniable. Well ahead of Cyrus's rule, God foretold through Isaiah that Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, would rise conquer Babylon, and decree the freeing of the Israelites. The evidence is so compelling they have no choice but to admit God's hand in their salvation. See verse 6. You have heard, now see all this. But now from the second half of verse 6 through 8, Isaiah gives another hint about what God is going to tell his people. Look, it's new. It's unheard of. It's good. It's obviously undeserved, but it's not just from God. It's for God. Whatever it is, he's doing it for himself. That brings us to our second section, verses 9 to 11. God's purpose, God's glory. Now, John Piper calls this section the six hammer blows of God's God-centeredness. He lists these verses, 9 to 11, in Isaiah 48, as the densest part describing God's God-centeredness in the whole Bible. And the Bible often reveals God's urge to glorify himself. But right here, in three verses, six times he hammers the point home. For my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, my name, my glory. God's purpose is to be glorified by his saints. Now, Utah posed this question back in chapter 44, if you recall. Is this egomania? Is this the equivalent of a jealous boyfriend demanding his girlfriend pay attention only to him? 
Well, let's see if we can answer that question definitively here with this passage. Because at the center of this section about his glory, 9, 10, and 11, the middle verse, verse 10, is about our refinement by fiery trials. The test of our faith through trial and suffering is at the heart of God's glory. Let's ponder that. The alternative that I put forth to the egocentric boyfriend is unoriginally a caring father whose disobedient son, refusing to hold his hand, has stumbled over a cliff and is hanging on the ledge for dear life. And his father's telling his son, son, focus on me. See my hand. Don't pay attention to what's below you. Don't be distracted by the screams of others. Don't look down. Don't worry about anything other than me and my hand. Grab it, and I will lift you back to safety. See, that's why this is all about God. Keep your eyes focused on the one who can save you out of your affliction. So important to understand. This is the lens by which the entire Bible should be read. It's not about you and me. The Bible is all about God. And that's really good news. There's so many times when we read the Bible and we're tempted to say, wow, that passage resonates. Like, I can relate to that. I think this is about me. When we should be saying, that passage is all about God. See his heart. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm like David. I can fight my giants, you know? No, no, I'm like Joseph. Because the people around me throw me into a pit, but they can't keep me down. I'm going to rise to the top. Let me take a verse at random that we might be tempted to apply to ourselves. I don't know. How about, I can do all things <laughs> through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, that means that with enough faith, I can basically be a superhero, right? I mean, I can do all things like leap over a building in a single bound, right? All I need is enough faith. Do you, do you know how many churches are preaching that garbage right now this morning? What use does God have for a superhero? We don't need to be a superhero. We have God. That's way better. God doesn't only have superhero strength and powers. He's good. That's infinitely better. What God needs is broken, weak, frail, scared people through which to display his power and his glory. We don't carry this treasure around in the toughest, fireproof, bombproof, military-grade steel bank safe, but in a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's the lens through which we read the Bible. That's the consistent context. That's God's single-minded purpose throughout the book. 
Not for his saints to be glorified by God, but for God to be glorified by his saints. Yes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even though I am weak and frail and scared and broken, so that all can see that God is accomplishing those things through me. Well, I'm the farthest thing from a superhero. You know, we have, we have a tremendous legacy of saints, a heritage of faithfulness from the, those who came before us. Back in the 1700s, the German composer Johann Sebastian Bach understood the importance of this. Bach was actually a devout, biblically literate Christian, a proud German disciple of Martin Luther, in fact. Nearly three quarters of his more than 1,000 compositions were written explicitly for worship. His Christian witness was such a powerful instrument for kingdom purposes. In his day, he was nicknamed the fifth evangelist after the four gospel writers. Bach's epic Passion of St. John, Passion of St. Matthew, his Mass in B minor, they came to be known this is quite the description, the, as the supreme cultural achievement of all Western civilization. I mean, the radical skeptic, Friedrich Nietzsche, famous for declaring God is dead, that guy, after he heard Bach's composition played 100 years later by Mendelssohn, said, one who has completely forgotten Christianity truly hears it here as gospel. That's the power of Bach's music. And Bach did not seek glory for himself. He worked humbly at St. John's, uh, St. Thomas's Church in Leipzig. And do you know how he signed all of his compositions? S-D-G. Soli Dio Gracia. Glory to God alone. If any drop of glory can be squeezed out of anything that I ever accomplish. And it will be a molecule compared to Bach. Let it be God's alone. For like Johann Sebastian Bach, I am capable of nothing without Christ who strengthens me. Let's turn our attention to the second half of the poem. Starting with verses 12 to 16. God's authority. The second half of Isaiah's message is symmetrical to the first. It starts the same way as the first. Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, my people. Isaiah's covered who he's addressing, God's undeserving people. He's covered why he's doing it for God's glory. Now he wants to make clear who it is who is accomplishing this. It's God on God's authority. Where verse 1 and 2 spoke of the call on God's people and their failure to heed it, now in parallel, verse 12 and 13 speaks of God's call to his people and his faithfulness to heed it. This section is a reassurance to God's people. And so you have to put yourself in Isaiah's audience's shoes just for a minute, because I mean, it's easy for us to stand behind Isaiah and shake our heads and wag our fingers at the Israelites' unfaithfulness. But we have to admit this would all be rather disorientating. 
they would feel like the ground beneath their feet has given way. They've lost everything they thought was theirs. They thought it was secured by God's promise. So what do they believe now? For the exiled Israelites in Babylon, reading this text 250 years after Isaiah wrote it, and everything he prophesied has come to pass, what is this text telling them? Trust Cyrus. We know that they were not faithful to God, and that's how they ended up losing their promised land, ended up back in exile. Now there's this talk of a Persian king who's going to overthrow the Babylonians and send them back to Jerusalem. How can they trust this? Well, Isaiah is telling them they can trust this because it's God's plan. You can assuredly trust Cyrus, the Persian king. Look, look what he calls him in verse 14. Yahweh loves him. Cyrus is God's instrument. He will perform God's purposes on Babylon. Cyrus will succeed in bringing about your freedom and your safe return to Jerusalem because it is God who is working behind the scenes. Look at verse 15. It is I, even I, who have called him. In this situation, Isaiah establishes that this is God's call here. And you see it in verse 13. From the one who created the universe, my hand laid the foundation of the earth. And based on this level of commitment from God, who has all authority, the outcome is not in question. He calls, they stand forth. God's people have been unfaithful to God. God has remained faithful to his people. God is pleading with them. Now, finally, to put their faith in him and his authority. Have faith in the one God is sending. Cyrus, right? If we read this through the wrong lens, it can be difficult to reconcile the two halves of the poem. If we're so undeserving, then why is God pleading so earnestly for us to turn to him and to trust him? Why does he want to save us so desperately if we are as bad and rebellious as Isaiah says? I think that it's helpful here to remember the language that God has chosen to reflect this relationship. He's our father. In his own words, Abba, Father. So think of yourself as a parent for a moment. A parent whose rebellious, disobedient child refused to hold your hand as you hiked up a mountain because he's insisting that he's big enough to do it all by myself. If this disobedience includes throwing rocks at a sibling, stomping on wildflowers just for destruction's sake, Stealing the snacks from your backpack that you're saving for later? I mean, couldn't you see that you would be inclined to rebuke and discipline your child? But now, picture your son picking an unknown red berry and putting it into his mouth. Walking open-armed towards a wild animal. Or stumbling carelessly 
close to a sharp cliff. Would you not quickly turn from rebuke and discipline to earnest pleas for your child to turn to you? Be careful, you're in danger. Come back to me, look at me, turn to me, listen to me. Please don't take another step. Please don't go any further. You're on the wrong path. Turn and come back. And these two things are not mismatched. They fit together naturally. We're made in God's image. We share communicable attributes. And that of parental love is one of them. The complexities of parental emotions can combine anger at our child's reckless rebellion and putting themselves at risk and being forever lost with love. Love that overwhelms all other emotions. And then there's verse 16. What's going on in verse 16? Draw near to me, hear this. Cyrus is the one God is sending. But who's speaking now? The Lord has sent me and his spirit. I mean, Cyrus doesn't speak in the first person in Isaiah's prophecies. Who is there from the beginning? Who has been with God all along? Who does the Father send with the Spirit? Verse 16, and someone else is inserting themselves into this prophecy. You better come back next week because we're going to hear a lot more from him, from the servant. There are parallels between the two halves of the poem, right? Verse 3 to 6 spoke of the immediate return from exile, but verse 6 to 8 hinted at something better than that. I announce new things. Before today, you have never heard of them. And now in this half of the poem, verse 12 to 15 speaks of Cyrus leading the mini exodus out of Babylon. But verse 16 here hints at someone better than that. I love this because the Bible only has one central character. The New Testament is all about what Jesus accomplished the Old Testament is all about what Jesus will accomplish. And there are a number of other characters in the Old Testament who point towards the need for Jesus, our need for God to send a savior, someone who can redeem us. Like Joseph, who saves his brothers despite them throwing him into the pit. Like Moses, who leads God's people to their promised land. Like David, who sits on the throne of Israel like Cyrus in a way, who will lead God's people out of exile. And in this instance, it's like the prophet can't help himself. It's supposed to be more subtle than this. You're supposed to have to try to figure it out for yourself. But Isaiah can't help himself. It's all about Jesus, people. You can trust Cyrus to get you out of Babylon. But Jesus is the one who will redeem you once and for all. Jesus is at the heart of the Bible. Jesus is at the heart of the entire human story. Our sin creates enmity between us and God. And Jesus reconciles us to God. Anyway, I'm in danger of stealing next week's thunder, so I'll leave it at that. This is a mere prelude to chapter 49, a teaser. Let's look at our last section, verse 17 to 22. God will lead you home. Verse 12 to 15, 
was God's plea to his people to have faith in him now after such a long stretch of faithlessness. Verse 17 to 19 is God's lament to his people that they did not have faith in him sooner. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. If only you trusted me back then, you would have peace now. You wouldn't need to go through this furnace of affliction for refining. You would have peace like a river already. I had the chance to float down the Credit River on a hot summer's evening with my best friends in inner tubes from Norville down to Laidlaw Farm Bridge. I, I get the expression peace like a river now. But now verse 20. Here it is, it's time. This is the point of the whole message. It's time to go home. Leave Babylon. You'll be under my protection, God says. Because God will use Cyrus to provide them with that protection and they can go home to Jerusalem at last. Home. Home has a draw on us. We're willing to go through any amount of trials to return home. Homer's Odyssey, the ancient Greek epic, recounts Ulysses, his return home after the 10-year-long Trojan War. His trip home would take another grueling 10 years, but he's fueled by longing for home. And it's not unique. At the end of the Second World War, I mean, when the victory was declared, soldiers, just wherever they were, they just said, okay, I'll head home. And they started week long, month-long marches back home from wherever they were in Europe. What does going home convey to you? Respite, comfort, food, clean laundry for some of you, warmth, rest, sleep, peace. That's why no matter how much the world wants to normalize broken homes, it remains a defining traumatic event in the life of any child because that unconditional love is threatened. That sense of belonging is exposed. And I know some of you were not provided with a peaceful home in your childhood. And some of you don't have a peaceful home right now. I know that's something you carry and you still bear the scars from. And yet, more than likely, you still have a longing for a home. What is it that we crave? I mean, with apologies to our realtor friends, home is not about the house. Home is not measured in square footage or a number of half baths. I don't want to sound insensitive. insensitive. Houses are so unaffordable these days that I know some of you just have a real yearning for a house, any house. But that's kind of my point. Home isn't the house itself. Home is where you belong, where you are a member of the family, where you're known, where you'll continue to be loved unconditionally, regardless of your mistakes, where you can rest because you're safe and you're where you yearn to be. And the longing is real, even if we don't know the place. We pine for somewhere we've never even been. How can that be? Why has God placed this yearning in our hearts? 
because he wants to lead you there. So where is it exactly? What is this home Isaiah is speaking of? There are echoes of the Exodus in verse 20 and 21, right? And this trek out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem. There's the fleeing, the desert, and come on, the water from a rock. But our poem doesn't end at verse 21. There's a 22nd verse. There's no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Listen up and heed this warning. We know home is not an address. In fact, without the Lord at the center of it, home is just another empty idol. Verse 22 is stark. I mean, what an ending. You can return home, but if you do not return to God, there is no peace. As much as home conveys notions of comfort and peace, we know that the home itself does not provide these. Rather, a good, protective father does. For far too many people, home is a place of strife because it's led by a domineering, abusive, or absent father. Isaiah and God, through him, are pleading with you Put your trust in the one who will lead you to the home you are yearning for. The home of your heavenly father. This home is real. For the Israelites, following Cyrus' home would not be the peace they're longing for. They'd rebuild the temple, but it wouldn't last. They would have to look forward to the ultimate savior. The one God's already sent for you. The servant verse 16, the central character of the Bible, Christ. Listen and hear what Jesus has to say in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. If you're with us this morning, and you're not sure you do know the way, that's okay. Thomas didn't either. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. So listen up. God has sent him for you to lead you, to show you the way home. Follow him, grab hold of his hand and do not let go. Put your faith in him and he will lead you home. The home you've always been yearning for, the one where you belong, where you will be loved forever, the home where your perfect heavenly father is waiting for you. He is the one pleading with you now through Isaiah, through these words, through his own word, the Bible. He's pleading with you to trust in the one he sent to bring you home, Christ. 
He's lamenting the times you've turned away from him down the wrong path. And he is warning you that there's no peace in any other home. The burden is not on us. It's not on us to lead the way. We're freed of the burden to find our own way home. We can trust in Christ. He will not allow your foot to slip. He is the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for putting this yearning in our hearts that we all may know that you have a better home for us. Although we've never been there, we've never seen it, yet we yearn for it. We long to be in the house where you dwell. So thank you that you sent your son to redeem us from our sin and reconcile us to you, even though it is entirely undeserved. Yet you did not abandon us to our wayward stumbling around, but you sent your son. You sent Christ. He is the word we should heed. He is the way we should follow. He is the shepherd who will lead us. He is our Lord we submit to. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.